Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. My name is Russell Berry. I'm teaching pastor here, and uh, we're grateful that you are with us. Um, And especially as we continue on in this series, Masterpiece, The Intersection of Art and Faith. This is the third installment. If you've missed it, you can go check it out on our SoundCloud or our uh, iTunes podcast to get the other two you don't want to miss. But we're speaking about the power of art in our world and the significance of it in our culture. And we have a culture that's really fascinated by the arts and for good reason because we are beings created by a creative creator to do good works, as we've already discussed. And it's interesting because one of the ways we get to see this worked out is our fascination with, like, music show contests. Y'all know, like, The Four or, you know, The Voice or back in the day, American Idol when that was hot. And the interesting thing is I used to think that... um, especially in American Idol, when they would have that, the first part of the series where they would like show the like bad auditions. And I used to think it was staged, like, and they would just, you know, bring people in to just be bad on purpose because I could not believe that people could really put themselves out there and think that they were that good. That's what I thought until I started to audition people. See, prior to moving here, uh, Tamika, my wife and I, we led a music ministry uh, in Indiana, and we would audition students from all over the country. We'd go around. Uh, Amanda was part of that. She actually auditioned and was part of our band two different summers and, you know, toured with us great times. But as we would do that, we would not always get Amanda's. I remember one audition in particular. He was uh, (laughs) a... Well, he was a lot of things. He called himself Complex the Exec. That was his name. He's from Atlanta. And, um, and we asked him, well, when you say Complex the Exec, like, what, tell us the origin of that name. And he would say, well, because I'm the executive of Complex Enterprises. I was like, really? What's Complex Enterprises? Me. So you're your own executive for yourself. <laughs> okay. All right, cool. So what are you going to do for us? So he said, I'm going to do a little thing. So he starts rapping right now. The way our setup was, uh, because we wouldn't make a decision right there, we would record them, and then we would kind of collaborate and discuss later on. So we had two people who would just kind of run the audition, and then we had a camera person who would just record it so that then we could go and discuss later. So cameras rolling, and Complex is just doing his thing, and he was really all into himself. He thought, I mean, he had business cards, and, you know, he just thought he was doing it big. And at one point, this dude, like, is doing his thing, and I guess he saw that he wasn't connecting, and I kid you not, like, so the front row is, like, the camera. He literally, like, jumps off stage and just, like, right in front of the camera person, who is a pregnant woman, right, (laughs) who, like, almost falls completely back in her chair, You know, it starts in labor because this dude has just freaked her out and scared her to death. Well, needless to say, his name was complex, but the decision was actually very simple. It was a no. But the thing that was interesting is that oftentimes when you did things like auditions, especially in 
Christian spaces, people would sometimes get offended because you dared um, deny this sense of calling that they had. Well, you know, the Lord told me that this is what I was supposed to do, so how dare you criticize my gift and my calling? And we would have to explain, well, clearly you, don't, you can't hear tones, and so maybe you misheard the Lord in that. Um, but the reality is there's this, this, this tendency, this perspective oftentimes, especially in Christian circles, that somehow we are not supposed to, it's unspiritual to demand excellence. So we're going to talk about this commandment today, thou shalt not be whack. That's the command. It's a call to excellence, a call that we see in Scripture. But before we can go to the solution, we have to really deal with the problem, and that's a problem we find oftentimes in Christian art. I use the quote Christian because as Sho Baraka kind of did an incredible job last week uh, explaining and breaking down for us that oftentimes this sacred secular divide is really just an artificial uh, fabrication, a false dichotomy as if somehow the Christian ought not to see everything that they do as holy and sacred. No, 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 no. Wherever you go <laughs> tomorrow, work, school, whatever, in the artistic space, in a, in a job space, like, that's worship. It's worship. It's not just those who are in full-time vocational ministry. But if we are truly devoted as believers to the ultimate creator who created all things, Shouldn't it look like an utter commitment to excellence ourselves if we're to represent the one who created the universe and at the end of the process after day six looked and said, it is very good. Not, you know, it's good enough. <laughs> That'll do. It's all right. But it is very good. If, if that's really who we believe and we were made in God's image and likeness, then ought we to also pursue this kind of excellence? The problem is because truth is prioritized over beauty, excellence is not valued oftentimes in these circles and spaces. In fact, I was watching uh, you know, a video uh, of this message before, and it was a per person talking about these two Christian filmmakers. And he said, you know, they're not really filmmakers. They're really preachers. And, and, and so their movies are really sermons. And you see, I'm like, the, the problem is there's a, a misunderstanding of one's call and vocation as an artist. You're not just called to make sermons, you're called to make art in that space if you're using an artistic medium. And the same is true oftentimes in uh, music circles. And so, unfortunately, for far too often, Christian art is usually associated with bad art. One of the, but the problem isn't just dealing with technical um, aesthetics. It also has to do with authenticity, and it also has to do with economics of just, you know what? It's better sometimes to be a big fish in a little pond of this sub-sub-genre than a little fish in a big pond where I have to swim with some folks who are really making things at a top-notch level. So we're going to really challenge each other and ourselves to look at this aspect of, okay, if, if we are not supposed to be whack, 
then how do we do excellence? Well, the first law, law one, and thou shalt not be whack, is technical excellence. Technical excellence. Now, technical excellence is meaning like there are techniques involved with any artistic expression or any athletic expression. Really, anything that we do, there's an aspect where there are kind of rules of engagement. There, there are best practices for how to best utilize your instrument. And if we don't pay attention to those things, we end up ignoring them. And the interesting thing is God cares about excellence. Now, we've already described and discussed the creation and how he said at the end of each day, it is good, it is good, it is good. And when he was done, it is very good. But it doesn't just end there. God's commitment to excellence doesn't stop at creation. So if we look at creation as kind of the first major moment of God's involvement in human history, then the next major moment where we see creating things involving him is really in the Exodus story. In the Exodus account, after uh, God leads the people out of bondage in Egypt, he, they're in the wilderness and he commands them to make a tabernacle, a, a tent where his presence is going to uniquely dwell unlike anywhere else on the earth. And they are going to take these artifacts, these things that are used, this tent that they're going to meet in and to worship God and, and, and with them wherever they go. And we know that's at least 40 years plus after that as they go into the promised land. So this is the first long-term structure used to represent God in the world. And look in Exodus 31, verses 1 through 3, what, how God commands Moses to build this structure. It says, the Lord also spoke to Moses, look, I have appointed by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft to design artistic works in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut gemstones for mounting, and to carve wood for work in every craft. And it goes on into very specific detail, the kind of details that an artist would be interested in. And, and, and it, it explains how every part of this tabernacle, every artifact, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the things that are to hold the incense and the, the bronze altar, and all of these things are supposed to meticulously be done well. But look, when we look at the verse, first of all, we have to notice it says, I have appointed by name, Bezalel. It says, no, no. See, I'm not just going to let you, Moses, pick any old person to create something for me. I'm going to tell you exactly who I want to do this. Next thing we have to see, it says, I have filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability. This is fascinating. He says, in other words, I'm not just going to, like, give him some talents. He said the, the vehicle, the, the, the mechanism by which this brilliance and this talent and this excellence is going to be executed is no one less than me, my spirit, my very presence internally operating in him is going to give him the ability to create the things that I want to create. See, God cares about this. He's saying, no, you know, if you want something done right, go and do it yourself. He's saying, I'm going to operate inside of Bezalel. And then it says specifically, in every craft to design artistic works. Good, excellent art. And so he's saying, look, don't just throw anything together and put my name on it. I want 
excellence in this thing. And as you go, you know, read the rest of the chapter uh, in your own time, and you'll see he brings up this other guy, Aholiab, and there's an aspect of them mentoring and developing other people to do this in the work that was created. Well, after a long, arduous time through the wilderness and the people go into the promised land, they take the promised land and establish a kingdom with a king. And the first king was Saul, and Saul was not, uh, it was a a king that disobeyed and rebelled against God, and so as a result of that, God's spirit departed from Saul. And in this process, so Saul ends up having some issues, as we would say. He had a lot of issues. In 1 Samuel 16, look at what it says. It says, Saul's servants said to him, you see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the lyre, which is kind of like a guitar. Whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, the person can play the lyre and you will feel better. Now, of course, there's some interesting theological understanding. They go, whoa, an evil spirit from God, how does that work? We ain't got time to unpack all of that. But let us just say that Saul disqualified himself from leading in light of his continual disobedience from God. And so he's in this space where he is now troubled and vexed and anxious. So they heard about this young buck from this small town. And they said, you know, we heard that boy can play, so they decided to have their own auditions. You know, they got Randy and Simon, and they're just, you know, so tell us where you're from and uh, what you're going to sing for us and do for us. But they heard about this one dude, and he was skillful in playing the lyre. He was skillful in singing, and, and they heard about how he would spend all day in the fields because he was, had to watch over these sheep, and he would act like the sheep was like his audience and his crowd, and he would sing and, and play, and, and you could hear the music from far away. And so they said, yo, let's give him a shot. And the rest of the chapter explains the king's response. Uh, he, you know, we see in verse 23, it says, then Saul sent word to Jesse, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor with me. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play, and Saul would then be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. This is fascinating. It's saying, look, Somebody is feeling troubled, and, and, and there's a sense of, of a spiritual oppression on them. And so their solution, their idea is, let's find someone who can play music well, and somehow in that playing, this spirit will leave. Now, that sounds kind of crazy and a little bit otherworldly until you stop and think about your own experience. Oftentimes, we can come into a space like this with the burdens of the world on our shoulders, distracted, discouraged, and then we hear a worship song, and then we hear a set, and we hear some exhortation, and all of a sudden those burdens melt away, and now we feel free and light. Anybody ever had that experience before? I know I just did. <laughs> and there's this element where a skillful playing, I mean, we've had experience where, where people have literally come from out of, off the street and heard music here and decided, hey, what's going on in here? I just want to sit and be a part of it. So David ends up being in the service of the king as a result of that. Now, he would go on to write much of this book of Psalms. 
which is, by the way, have you ever thought about the fact that the longest book in the Bible is a book of poetry and, and music? That tells you how much he cares about this issue. David's reputation for technical excellence was so strong that it had a spiritual impact on people's lives. And, of course, later on, he, his identity as not only an artist but a warrior would come to motivate people and inspire people years later, even thousands of miles away, specifically in this town of Florence, Italy, where people would focus on David as their kind of favorite Bible character, uh, make paintings and songs and even sculptures about him. So in 1401, uh, a church in Florence, you know, had acquired this massive piece of marble, huge, and they needed somebody to do a sculpture. And uh, they asked and invited somebody, and they heard that there was this 26-year-old from around the block who had some skills, and, and he decided to take on the task of changing and transforming a massive piece of rock into David. And Michelangelo would go on to create one of what we now consider one of the most impressive pieces of art in the world. His David stands 17 feet tall, weighs 12,000 pounds, and look at the detail of the foot. Now I mean, imagine, this is marble. It's a piece of rock. You can see toenails. You can see the bones in the feet protruding. Look at, look at the hands. I mean, he got veins in there. You see a wrist, I mean, out of stone. And the thing that was interesting is not even just in the execution, but even in the overall approach, everybody at that point had always done images of David victoriously over Goliath, usually with like a head in his hand and things like that. But Michelangelo decided to take a different take on it, and he actually had David standing before he fought Goliath. And if you look at his face, his, actually he, they pointed it so that his face was facing Rome because you see Florence was experiencing oppression by those in Rome. And it was this symbol, this statement that says, just as this little guy defeated a giant, so will we defeat you if you come mess with us. And the, the, the detail of the expression and then look, this is something that, I mean, it stands 17 feet tall. I don't even understand in that time period how he was able to get up that high and just, you know, just with a tool to be able to create something like this. It took him three years. And over 600 years later, 8 million people annually come and visit from around the world a statue, a sculpture that was for Michelangelo a work of worship. He makes it very clear what his motivation is in making this piece of art. You see, when you make things that well, people are drawn to it, are drawn to a certain sense of beauty. People ask Michelangelo, they're like, yo, how did you do this? This is so crazy. I mean, it was initially they were planning on putting it way up into the very top of the chapel. But then when they, when they saw what they were dealing with, they said, no, we got to put this on the ground level so everyone can come see it. In fact, they put it outside. So they didn't even put it stood outside for centuries. 
before somebody had the bright idea, we probably want to bring that in, protect it from the elements. But look at what Michelangelo said. He said, if people knew how hard I worked to get my mastery, it wouldn't seem so wonderful at all. You see, Michelangelo said, I didn't just roll out of bed, decide to pick a certain filter and then put it against a rock and say, look, look how dope it is. See, part of the problem with our day and age now was we, we look and we think we can just have microwave success. I could just decide one day, you know what, I'm going to be dope at this, so dee, 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 mm, bing, success. It doesn't work that way. Just like David spent years in those fields practicing on that lyre, practicing his songs and, art, and, and perfecting his craft so that when his name got called and he got to the courts, he was ready. Michelangelo was ready when the time came and said, yo, when I was there at two in the morning, my hands sore with calluses, bleeding from the stones, it wasn't so wonderful. But what prevents us from getting this type of excellence and expertise? Well, you know, it was a, a study done at a ceramics class. A professor decided to, uh, to do something unique, and he, and, the, and he separated the class into two parts. And said, one group, he said, I want you to make as many pieces of pottery in a certain given amount of time. That's your goal. In the same amount of time, he told the other half of the group, just make one really good piece. Just make your best piece, just one. That's it. At the end of the time period, what, he, what, they, what they saw was that the group that was just told make as many as possible actually made the best pieces of art as well. The group that was told just make one really good one, many of them didn't even finish. They had ideas, but they got stuck in the paralysis of analysis, and so they just got froze with the anticipation and the expectation and the frustrations of what it meant to make one good thing. And oftentimes, we can find ourselves stuck so much in trying to make something good that we don't even do the process and go through the process to see the group that made many of them. What they learned was that as they made the one, it was like, oh, that's kind of weird and bad and not that great. Let me do something else and make the, do something different the next time, do something different the next time. And they didn't feel the pressure and the burden of making something perfect. And it freed them up. And so we have to get to the place where we recognize, yes, that Excellence is a great thing to have, but we have to be careful to strive for excellence, not perfection. You see, striving for perfection and demanding that will immobilize you. It will freeze you in fear, and it'll just get you stuck. I love one of Show Baraka's favorite, uh, one of my favorite songs of his called Ali. This is what he says. He says, some know a lot, say a lot with no application. Success's mistress is procrastination. How many works of art have been lost because of the snooze button? How many pieces of beauty have been lost because, you know what, I'm just going to decide, <laughs> hmm, do I work and tarry and wrestle with this idea or do I just see what's popping on the ground? And we lose because we decide to not, you know, and then we get cute with it and be like, you know, I'm just doing this for research. <laughs> I've been there. See, I know. But we have to strive for excellence. And the first thing is to realize that technical ex expertise and technical excellence is important. The second law is authenticity. Authenticity. 
Now, to kind of illustrate this one, we're going to get into a little bit of the history, history of black music some, because we have to understand, see, one of the things that's important is to recognize that in dealing with art or creativity or even sports or whatever it is that your genre is, or if, even if it's IT, is that there's always a historical conversation that's happening that you're joining. And so the great ones, the ones who really get it, understand that they have to know the history in the background. It was fascinating when I saw when uh, Kendrick Lamar won his Pulitzer Prize. Tony, uh, Tony Morrison said this. Now, Tony Morrison also won a Pulitzer Prize, and she won a Nobel Prize in literature in the 90s. And she appreciated Kendrick Lamar because she said he recognizes and understands the use of blues, jazz, and soul in the creation of his art. His work is more than merely brilliant. It is magic because of that. Kendrick understands. And when you hear the tone and the angst and, and, the, and you know, when you listen to the album Damn or, or, or you know, Pimp a Butterfly or any of those, you, you can hear these threats. His ability to speak from the perspectives of different people and express their pain is brilliant and unique. But he understands theoretically where his art stands in the place of. So there's a friend of mine who's a uh, music uh, historian as well as a jazz artist. Uh, her name is Ruth Naomi Floyd. She's a vocalist, a composer. So she's presented five albums where she literally wrote every song. And she's a, a, a solid and committed Christian. And so she uses what she calls straightaway jazz, like not like smooth jazz or anything you see on the radio, but like straight up jazz, you know, eight minute songs, riffs, solos, you know, all of that. And then she uses... The, her lyrics that she creates to talk about the faith. And this is, and I asked her, because she talks a lot about blues. And I asked her, like, what does that have to do with, like, with excellence? And how, how do we understand this aspect of suffering? And this is what she said. Because I was talking to her about excellence, right? And so I'm like, what is, what is, what is your takeaway about why, you know, we don't tend to do excellence well in Christian community? <laughs> this is what she said. Blew me away. You can't talk about excellence without talking about failure. And she said, this is why the blues resonates so much. And this is why it's kind of this fountainhead. Because you see, in the spiritual tradition, what happened is you had these enslaved Africans who are pining for and yearning for this sense of deliverance, this sense of freedom. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for the carry me home. And they didn't know if that home was going to be a sense of a place of belonging in this world or in the, in the world to come. And so there was this place of longing, but then what happens after emancipation is that they, what do you do when you are freed, but you're not really free? What do you do when you, you, you're supposed to be free, but you, you're still the victim of black codes? You're still the victim of Jim Crow segregation. You sing the blues. And it was this aspect of pain, of disappointment, of rejection. And oftentimes Christians are afraid to lament and sing the blues. It's interesting, uh, Sung Cha Ra is a professor, and he wrote this book called Prophetic Lament. And he talks about the need for our culture, and especially in the church, to lament, to weep, and to, and to do this prophetically to understand that we have to deal with what he calls the dead bodies in the room after centuries of oppression, of injustice. We, we have to deal with those things and mourn those things and grieve those things. So what he did was he looked and studied. He took the top 100 uh, CCLI, Christ, contemporary Christian songs, 
And he evaluated, and out of those top 100 songs, only five of them, he said, could even loosely qualify as laments. You see, we have this very triumphalistic, overly sappy, simplistic kind of worship and and expression oftentimes. We don't like to talk about struggle and pain. We just like to act like everything's going to be all right. But when you are honest and when you are vulnerable, this is at the heart of the blues. And this is why when, when she said that, it automatically clicked to me why David was such a good artist. Because you see, when you read the Psalms, you see there's a lot going on there. One of the things that we often kind of can skip over, there are these parts called the superscriptions. They are right under the name of the Psalm, so like Psalm 52. And there's this description that frames the context oftentimes of the song that you're about to read. And this is a piece of poetry. And so one of them in Psalm 52, it says this, For the choir director, a mass skill of David, which was a type of song, like a dirge. And then he gives the context. When Doeg the Edomite went and reported to Saul, telling him David went to Ahimelech's house. Now, there's a lot of names there, and what does that mean? So soon after David finds himself in Saul's court and soothing what's going on, Saul flips even more and decides to pursue David, convinced that David's trying to kill him and take over his kingdom. So David has to flee, and he's on the run. And there's a group of people that recognize the injustice happening to David, and so they go with him. And so one day he decides to go into Ahimelech's house. Ahimelech was a priest. And so they were over serving the needs of the people and, 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 and offering, helping lead the people into worship. Where there was this guy named Doeg there, and He was loyal to Saul, and he kind of saw that David was there. And so then he went back to Saul and snitched. Saul came to uh, Ahimelech's house and murdered Ahimelech's entire family. Wiped them out. And David hears about this. And can you imagine the, the angst that he feels like this whole man's family is dead because this guy is after me and this guy snitched. And look at what David says in the beginning of the psalm. Why boast about evil, you hero? God's faithful love is constant, like a sharpened razor. Your tongue devises destruction, working treachery. You love evil instead of good, lying instead of speaking truthfully. Selah. Pause. Think about that. That's when he's on, right? This is like the first diss track. This has like nothing on Pusha T and Drake, right? He's upset and he's angry and he's he's writing that pain out. And it's in the Bible. But he doesn't just talk about the external issues that happens with him. He also looks internally as well. The psalm right before that has another superscription. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Now, for those who may not know, Bathsheba is not a place. It's a person. And this brother commits adultery, sleeps with another man's wife, then gets the other man murdered, using his power as a king in order to do it, hides and covers up the secret for a year, and then he gets confronted by a prophet who says, you are that man, you're wrong for that. And then he confesses his sin and decides to put pen to paper and write a song about it for the whole congregation to sing. 
Verse one, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. And this is why David resonates and appeals to us because when he says, yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He's being very real and people are like, yeah, I, can, I felt that sometimes, that I've walked through the valley of the shadow of death. If we are unwilling to be real, then our art and our lives will be whack. If we won't deal with our story and own it and and wrestle with it and be willing to demonstrate what it is that God is doing in us, then it won't resonate as true. It won't ring true. And we'll just kind of keep it generic and and keep it vague and and talk about, you know, God is great and God is good. And it's like, and people is see-through. People want that real. Like, what what are you going through? Show me some pain and not just something that happened a long time ago. You know, I had to experience this uh, journey. My specific uh, medium of creativity is writing. And writing is a very um, challenging process because especially oftentimes before anyone sees it, right, you you give it and submit your work to an editor, (laughs) Who, who reads what you're writing and then makes, you know, suggestions. And if anybody remembers when you're like in school and you got the paper back with the red ink and it was like, oh gosh. And it can feel like that just being totally exposed. Earlier this year, we released um, a series of devotionals called The Seven Habits of Healthy Christians. And during that process, I had the privilege, privilege of working with Christina Utley um, as an editor. She edited those works for me. And it was a hard process because she pushed and she challenged it. You know, she was respectful with it, but it was still like, yo, this ain't quite right. Change it. And, and then once you get it through that gauntlet, <laughs> then you put it out there for the public to consume. And is anybody going to read it? Is anybody going to respond? What is that going to feel like? And there's this aspect of, of those burdens and fears that can come to it. And I still deal with those fears as I felt very compelled and led by the Lord to to write more and specifically a book. And I'm I'm dealing with this thing and and I I find almost saying it in hushed tones because I don't want people to know because I'm still not quite comfortable and sure if I want it to be out there that that's even what I want to do. And that might be you today where there's something that God has put on your heart and mind to do, some risk that you feel called to take, but there's a fear And sometimes I'm not even sure if it's a fear of failure or a fear of success. Because, you know, you get to this level of success or or then it's like, can I even maintain it? Or will it expose me that I can't even withstand the thing that I think I'm good at? Putting your art on display is dying to self in front of other people. That's what it is. And until we get to a place where we acknowledge that and own that and embrace that, then it will always be whack. It will always fall short of what it is that God created us to be. That risk, that dream that you have, is it worth it? You know, it's funny. Thomas Edison uh, took 100 attempts to make the light bulb. And people asked him, they said, man, how did... How did you endure the, 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 the brutal failure of all these times of, 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 of like making these light bulbs and you just kept getting it wrong and kept getting it wrong? He's like, well, I didn't look at it that way. I looked at it like I figured out 99 ways not to make a light bulb. 
And sometimes we have to embrace that process. Well, what is the Lord using to shape you? What are the experiences that, as you think about your superscription on your artwork for the choir director, the time when you were depressed, alone, afraid? Don't run from those moments. Use them, embrace them, and recognize that God is going to use those very stories to tell a greater story. The other thing is we oftentimes need community. Dave, it's instructive that David didn't get out of his self-deception until he was called out on it. It's instructive that even as a writer, I need and depend on an editor in order to help my best ideas come and take shape. And part of the challenge is when we fail to reach out to other people. What, are you, what failure are you afraid of? The thing that might prevent you from even pursuing the things that God has put on you to do. Until we pursue that and are really willing to go through the process of trial and error and embracing that process as part of what God uses, until we're willing to do that, then we won't get to the place where God wants us to be. We won't make excellent art. Well, the last one, the third law, is to find redemption. To find redemption. You see, anybody can, you know, and a lot of people have technical excellence that we can see in the world, and, and even many of them are very authentic, and they keep it real, and you know all the drama and the business of their lives. But until we're able to see to a higher truth, a transcendent truth, a truth that says, even in spite of what I'm feeling right now, that there is that bless the Lord, oh my soul, all that is within me, that God is speaking a deeper reality and truth. Until we get to that place, we still will fall short of the ultimate purpose that God has for our art. And probably no person I can think of embodies that more, and so especially when we look at the history of the spirituals and the blues is Thomas A. Dorsey. Thomas A. Dorsey was a, what they call a blues man. He wrote over 400 blues songs throughout his illustrious career before the age of 30. Yeah, he was getting busy. And by age 30, he's, he's married, beautiful wife, 32. They are expecting a child, and all is great in his world. He has this great career. He starts, you know, even writing gospel songs and, 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 and kind of speaking into that space. And, and so, uh, they're, they're, you know, she's with child. She's eight months, and he has to go do a gig. They were in Chicago. He, decide, he, he drives to St. Louis. And um, while he's there uh, leading worship, he, you know, played uh, piano, uh, he gets a telegram. The telegram read, hurry home now. Your wife just died. And he's there in the midst of this worship set, seeing people celebrating and worshiping God. And he's just like, has to finish this thing out and wondering, is, it, is the message true? Because this is a telegram, right? It's not like a text where you can confirm things and ask follow-up questions. And he finishes up barely able to hold himself together and immediately makes a beeline to St. Louis. I mean, from St. Louis to Chicago. And when he's there, he opens the door, and he, he's, he's greeted by people who are just grieving and saying, Nettie's dead, Nettie's dead, Nettie's dead. And he's mixed with this, 
this, this turmoil of grief and joy because the baby survived the pregnancy, but his wife didn't. And then two days later, the baby died. And he is inconsolable with grief at this point. And some friends try to give him these trite words of encouragement and, and nothing's working. And he's just like, I'm not ready to hear this. I don't know if I ever will be. And he, he finds and struggles with the words to even pray. And somebody says, just, you know, call out to precious Lord. And he hears that phrase and from that very moment begins to sing, take my hand, precious Lord. Take my hand. Lead me home. I don't know how to get from this moment, but lead me home. And a few days later, he, he, he commits this to a song, and in this song, he looks for a muse, someone who can express both the pain and the hope of this song in one place. And he meets this 16-year-old from New Orleans, but she had moved up to Chicago, too, with her family. Her name is Mahalia. And she has this once-in-a-lifetime voice, and, and she sees these lyrics and hears them, Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I'm tired. I'm weak. I'm alone through the storm, through the night. Lead me on the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. And she takes this song, and this song becomes her, her, her signature song and, and, and becomes her, this mantra, but not just for her. You see, there was another preacher, a small Baptist preacher in Atlanta, Georgia, that also could resonate with this song as he was going through from city to city and state to state and proclaiming this aspect of freedom and liberation. And this song became his favorite song. And so he began to ask Mahalia, hey, could you sing this song with us when we go? Could you, could you sing? And so she would go with him and travel with him from 1958 all the way on until the end of his life. And one day in Washington, D.C., she's singing this song at this massive march. And weary from the travel, weary from his experiences, he, he's, he's, he's hitting this message, but it's not really resonating. He's not getting quite his thoughts together. And he hears this voice from Mahalia. Tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And all of a sudden, he ad-libs, he freestyles and, and starts saying, I have a dream. And in this moment that's become a moment for our entire nation's history, everything changes because there's this aspect not just of the pain, of the despair, of the nightmare that they were living, but a dream of hope to come. She also would uh, invest in the younger generation, invest in others. There was a 14-year-old girl that she saw was super talented and, and also had these same convictions of hope and faith, and so she took her under her wing. And so when she passed away, when Mahalia died in 1972, it was only natural that this girl would come up and sing, Precious Lord, lead them home. That was Aretha Franklin. And so literally what you have in this moment of authenticity, of pain, and out of finding redemption, you literally have the history of black music from blues to gospel to soul to hip-hop right there because people were authentic and real with their struggle. Well, the creator is still making masterpieces out of dust. He still are using those things that are our deepest moments of pain and struggle and changing them and creating works of art out of bitterness and pain. 
This is what Mahalia Jackson has. They asked her why, because at this point, her voice was considered so dynamic, so great, that they were like, why don't you just sing more stuff? Why don't you sing blues like everyone else? She had been trained that she was a huge fan of Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith, but she only sang gospel. And this is what she said. She said, I sing God's music because it makes me feel free. It gives me hope. With the blues, you finish, you still have the blues. But she said, with this message of hope, she felt free. Why does she feel free? Well, because she has a Savior who also sang the blues. You see, on Friday, when he felt that sense of betrayal and he felt that sense of abandonment, when his enemies were looking over him and like David were gloating over him, He also could sing the blues and say, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm abandoned. I'm alone. I wish this cup could pass before me. There's the pain. There's the real, but here's the hope. But not my will, but your will be done. And so because that Savior is the one that got her very foundation, she could look forward and look toward a hope that was beyond herself. And see, there's a verse that says right there in the songs, you see, weeping may endure for a night, but joy come in the morning. And so even though the blues were there on Friday, on Sunday, there was gospel music. There was gospel at the resurrection. There was the good news and the hope that, yes, God will even take the most brutal, darkest moment in human history and flip it into something that now we walk around wearing crowns, crosses, because of the hope that is there. That's what happens when we find that redemptive thread. Now, that's not to say that every single piece that we do or create or moment has to have all of that woven in it, but that is the compass by which we see truth and see beauty and see goodness. And it's why Colossians 3.23 says this, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. So tomorrow as you go back to work and you might be working for a supervisor or boss that you're like, yo, they get on my nerves, they frustrate me, the people that are next to me, it's like, yo, whatever you do, you're not working for them. You're not doing this for them. There is a greater good. There's a greater power. In fact, I feel you, my brother, because we all got to be there. And the reality is he says, do it as for the Lord because he sees and will respond and be present with you in the midst of that. And even you might be in a space where you're like, I wish I had that problem. I'm trusting God for a job. Trust the Lord wherever you are and he will be present with you. He invites us into this process. This is what Dr. Francis Schaeffer says as I close. He says, no work of art is more important than the Christian's own life. Every Christian is called to be an artist in this sense. You may have no gift of writing, composing, or singing, but each man or woman has the gift of creativity in terms of how he or she lives their life. In this sense, the Christian's life is to be an artwork. The Christian's life is to be a thing of truth and beauty in the midst of a lost and despairing world. You see, when we are able to find the redemption in the very things that we experience in pain, then that means we can also be the works that people can see and go, wow, that's amazing. How do you do that? How do you find a sense of joy in the midst of your circumstance? I know what you're going through. 
I know how they did you. I know you should have got that promotion. I know you were overlooked. I know they did you wrong. How? And you can give a reason for the hope that's within you because of the one. That is how we don't live whack. That's how we live excellent lives. You see, art is an imitation of life. And when I live in that way, technically excellent, authentic, and finding redemption, then I will naturally create out of that space. Well, where do you need to find redemption? Where are those places in your life, those relationships that are broken, those dreams that have been broken, that you need to find that sense of hope? We all have them. And there might be places where you go, God can't change that. I mean, that was just, that's a broken place. That's a dead thing. But thank God we serve a God who specializes in resurrecting dead things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you give us a picture of what it looks like to not just create excellently, but to live excellent lives. Would you help us to find redemption, to find the story that you are telling in our lives, even in the midst of our pain and our setbacks. Help us to be authentic. Help us to strive to be excellent and help us to trust you to redeem us and and to redeem our lives from the pit. In Christ's name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.